Please join with me, brothers and sisters. Father in heavens, I ask with my friends here as disciples of Yahshua, approaching you in his name. Please, Father, take every part of this material that's pertinent to each of us and speak to each of us about those areas where you want to convict us today. Please now receive our worship and our praise and thanksgiving with many thanks in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. Well, I want to welcome you all to the night of special music. <laughs> so, based on your reaction to that remark, I guess um, you had the same feeling I did, huh? A sense of surprise and excitement. Um, I was, for a while there, I was wondering, oh, where's my clipboard? Because <laughs> um, the offerings and the music ministry today has been really edifying. The choir, uh, what a lovely surprise to have this... Uh, the visitor here, us thing up there, um, it really uh, sets the stage for a lovely meeting. The Bible readings were crisp. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, guests, people in the outreach, um, I'm, I'm Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. The title of my remarks today is Tribulation Preparation 103, Gritty Courage. This will wrap up the series on tribulation preparation, a topic that has concerned me for a long time. This is part three in a bundle of related topics. In Tribulation 101, I talked about enforcement. To summarize, we each must enforce Yah's commandments for ourselves in the areas where we have control, because all of us have authority over something, Sometimes we have authority over individuals. And only then can we have influence as we project Yahweh's standards out, outward in outreach. Then there's our secret code. We have a secret code amongst us. And it's one of those things that uh, in the military they call it open code. It's like <laughs> everybody knows what you're saying, but they don't understand it. And that secret code is the mind of Messiah, to think like him. By the way, I forgot to say hello to my dear friend Eric. I'm so very glad to see you, Eric. Sincerely, believe me, I'm very glad to see you here. Moving on to 103, gritty courage. Gritty courage. The objective here is to have these things in place because when the tribulation comes, there won't be any time to cultivate these character qualities, these resources among us. I want to talk about the parable of the ten virgins, because I know that parable has a lot of possible interpretations. Excuse me. Imagine now that two of the ten virgins are sisters. Imagine one of those sisters is wise and one is foolish. That means one of them has to look the other one in the eye and say, I don't have enough for you. You are not coming with. There's no time. There's just no time to develop the resources we need inside to confront the tribulation. Don't think, oh, I'll work it out later. We'll we'll, we'll take the plunge now and look for grace later. No. There's going to come a cutoff time. Whether the great tribulation is near or far, we owe it to ourselves and our children to be prepared. Many of the principles that prepare us for tribulation 
will also make us a good assembly now. Some of you guys might think about uh, fine-tuning your, your personality to please a woman. Hmm? But you know, the things you do to make yourself pleasing to Yahweh will also make you a good husband. And the same principle applies for the girls, you know, going in the other direction. Likewise, the principles that prepare us for the tribulation will make us a better assembly now. Moses' trials mainly revolved around a disorderly assembly in the wilderness. And that's why the assembly is a great place to develop the character qualities that prepare us for the end time. The grand final exam. Yahweh has laid out for us examples and instruction on how to handle naughty situations. But this business of gritty courage, boy, this is a big one. And only Yahweh knows how inadequate I feel for the task ahead right now in this presentation. So I talk about tribulation preparation. Well, people everywhere talk like the second coming is just around the corner. I remember first taking an interest in Bible prophecy around 1969 or thereabouts. And everybody was talking like, this can't go on much longer. It's just around the corner. Another 10 to 15 years and it'll be over. I've heard all that stuff. Then, of course, you got the knuckleheads who are picking dates, right? These guys, what an aggravation. But, you know, everybody senses this, that something's around the corner, that it's building up to a grand crescendo, <coughs> that the human history is building up to a grand climax. One of the reasons is we cannot kick the can down the road anymore. When Europe was, was plunging into social chaos, the righteous found a place to run. They ran to the American colonies. They ran to the American continent, the new world, they called it. Question, where are you going to run now? Where are you going to escape the reach of Babylon's technology? How many are really prepared? Pounding the drum, blowing the horn, oh, the end is just around the corner. But really, how many are prepared? The tribulation is going to be very ugly. I became a World War II junkie. Uh, I viewed every documentary I could so far. Some of them are repetitious, but there are certain themes I'm focusing on now. But friends, you don't know how bad it can be. You don't know how bad it can be. The scriptures describe uh, times when people will eat their own children. Are you ready for that? Even if the tribulation is two generations away, we still need to teach our children how to prepare. The term gritty courage draws attention to a need for painful preparation. Talking about painful preparation, there's going to be no pretty images here. I, it's just going to be me trying to get your attention, get stimulate thought. And preparing these notes, I realized I have no pretty pictures, visuals, nothing like that. So I have to use color and uh, uh, font design to maybe get your attention. But the end times are going to be painful. It's going to be painful to prepare for that, kind of like in the Marines. But gritty courage offers protection from failure on the front lines when we get there. Among those who are observant, there is universal agreement on this point, that Yahweh wants a strong people. But there's also a universal denial at play. 
Now, in a little while, we're going to break off and have a fellowship meal. That's enjoyable. But there's also this business of instruction, instruction in righteousness, and preparation for the hard times ahead. I think what's going to make it even harder is that the Bible, the prophetic language suggests that before the very end, there's going to be a time of live it up prosperity. That makes it really hard. Because if everybody's living it up, it's kind of hard to say, hey, this ain't going to last very long. The book of Revelation condemns the fearful. There'll be a number of times, not too many, where I will have to turn to the scripture. If you want to see it for your own eyes, you can. Revelation 21.8, it says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What amazes me is the word fearful is then the first thing in the list. Right up there with the abominable, the murderers, the sorcerers. This business of fearfulness is serious business with Yahweh. I'll tell you where else this word for fearful is used. You can look it up at your leisure. When Yahshua was in the boat with the apostles and it was stormy, he says, why are you fearful? Where is your faith? It's that same kind of fear. We will have to develop gritty courage. Romans 8.15, a different word for fear in this passage. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the most important slides here are going to be the last two. Well, the two from the last. The last one is just a conclusion and farewell. But prior to that, the two most important slides will be the last two. Between here and there, we're on slide 14 now. So it'll be slide 84 and 85. But between here and there, I'll be stimulating thought, challenging you. The spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You know, um, another place the scriptures say that people at large are in bondage unto fear, and that's why they sin. Fear of what? Fear of death. It literally says, by fear of death, they're in bondage unto sin. In my experience, observation, and research, people are not really sinning because they're afraid of death. I don't, because that would that would seem kind of illogical. What it's talking about there is you're afraid of something about yourself is going to die. A part of me is going to die. Maybe a part of my life. Maybe a part of my lifestyle. One of the problems in developing the courage we need for the end time is that all of us believe, I am good. I'm good. I'm a victim of injustice. Judgment does not apply to me. No, the rules don't apply in my case. No, you don't understand. There's a wrinkle here that there's there's extenuating circumstances. I deserve more mercy. I deserve more money. I deserve more mm, just about anything. I deserve a check in the mail. We all believe that, especially in this culture. I'm going to try to show you how much distance there is between where we are right now in this culture, much of the Western culture, and where we have to be for the tribulation. 
Because these crazy ideas are rattling around every one of our heads at one time or another. Here's how we talk. Today I demand justice. I've been hurt. I want justice. Tomorrow I want mercy. This is so predictable, you can put it on the calendar. I just don't know which dates you're going to put, the, which dates you're going to put one or the other. Odd number of days, we want justice. I've been harmed. I've been cheated. I deserve more. Tomorrow I want mercy. Here's a sampling. This is a short list. I mean, there's 10 bullet dots there, about 10, maybe 11. This is just a sampling of what our culture has foisted upon us. And we have been the willing dupes of this. When I say we, I mean the rhetorical we, because everybody in the sound of my voice is going to have an attachment to one of these bullet points. And again, it's only a sampling We are entwined in the system. We're so caught up in the system right now. If we had a breakaway tomorrow, it would be very painful. It would be like gluing your hand to a wall with super glue and then trying to rip it off. That's kind of what we're in right now. It has become a virtual dependence. From multiple sources, I've learned that uh, over 50% of us now are relying on a check to come in the mail from the government or to be direct deposited, where we're dependent on the government in some way. How in the world are you going to come out of her, my people, when you're entwined like this? Some of us are worried about how to fudge a mortgage application so we can get a mortgage. We want that house so bad. Look, I will never condemn anybody for buying a home or seeking a home. But if you have to falsify documents to do it, now we have a problem. That was the foundation of the crisis in 2008, this time around. People were buying homes that they could not afford. How did that happen? What did they say? What did they put on the mortgage application? I'm going to give you an example of this. Um, I was trying to rent my home in the Chicago area several years ago, and um, a fellow I liked a lot submitted an application, and part of the reference package was uh, references and also a photocopy of his bank statements because he had to verify income. And he had a jumbo, giant, black magic marker, you know, the smelly kind, the big one, the big black marker, blacking out certain entries on his bank statement. And I've tried forensically to figure out what that was that he didn't want me to see. Several of line items in his bank statement. I forensically reconstructed how much money he was blowing on these things. And it was a hard. Uh, those of you who are technically inclined might know what I did to mathematically reconstruct that. But basically, he was spending several hundred dollars a year on something. He had just defaulted on a mortgage. He had not paid his mortgage. And he let the house go. I drove by the house he lived in. You could... You could tell he wasn't taking care of it. I don't mean he just let the grass go long. I don't mean he just let the gutters get filled with leaves. No, it was pretty bad. And now he wants to rent a home from me. I still like the guy. Well, in all those rent trees where he blacked it out, there's a reason I'm putting you through this, friends. Hear me out. All those pots on his bank statement he blacked out with that jumbo magic marker There was an 800 number he neglected to block out. 
So I thought, ooh, I'm going to find out what this is. I called the 800 number. Take a moment and guess what it was. Don't say it out loud. Take a guess. What would he be spending hundreds of dollars on? So these would be transactions done with his debit card. It registers on the bank statement with an 800 number. What is it? It was the lottery board. It was the lottery board. So this guy wants to rent a home from me. He hasn't kept up with his mortgage. He hasn't taken care of his property. And he's blowing hundreds of dollars a month on lottery tickets. But he wants to rent a house from me. Those defaulted mortgages were the theme of the middle, you know, the first decade of this century. We have middle class students applying for financial aid. Now, you may be offended by this, but there's an important point I'm making here. All my life, I was, uh, in my youth anyway, I was in lower middle class or upper lower class. Now, there's six classes in our society lower, lower class, upper, lower class, lower middle class, upper middle class. Lower upper class, upper upper class. That's how, the, that's how the sociologists break it out. Vast majority of us in America are lower middle class. And there's no shame in that. That's where most of us are. I spent most of my life, when I was young, bobbling between upper lower class and lower middle class. But it really astonished me. I was going to a private high school. My father really struggled to pay for it. All these middle-class kids were applying to the government for student aid. And it's quite a game how you fill out the paperwork. I'll talk about it over lunch if you want. There's a way of structuring it so it looks like you really need this money. Now, here you've got these people who are paying too much in taxes, if you ask any of them, and then they turn around and say, I want some of the taxes back. The whole thing's a funny game. And the system is so corrupt now. Suppose every one of these middle-class student parents got together and said, hey, this is wrong. We're going to stop taking this money in. We can pay for this ourselves. We can make the sacrifices ourselves. Yeah, suppose they got together and they went to the Congress and said, we don't want this anymore. What happens then is it frees up dollars that the politicians use to buy votes from somebody else because that's how the system is going right now. As we... As a young man, that bothered me. All these people with nicer homes than me, nicer cars than me, (laughs) everything nice, and they go crying to the government like they're poor. I I don't get that. You know, if uh, we could find a just way to do this, we'd have a lot of dough for the people who really need the help. The poor are hooked on entertainment. Let's go back to that guy who spent all that money on lottery tickets. I have a book here that we read in the book club, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, written by Dr. Ruby K. Payne. There's a story in here that snapped a twig for me. Some teachers at a school observed that some of the kids in a particular family were obviously impoverished. And those teachers got together and they bought a refrigerator for that family so they could have fresh food and have quality food. You know how it is. If you buy in bulk, you save money, right? Right after the refrigerator was delivered, the children didn't come to school for a while. When they finally returned, 
and says, where have you guys been? We've been looking for you. And the kids said, well, we went on vacation, a family vacation. They said, family vacation? Uh, where did you get the money for the vacation? The kids said, oh, we sold the refrigerator. Now, we had a guy visiting from Chicago. Uh, he does inner city ministry. He was just passing through. It was a friendly guest. I told him that story, and he said to me, By the, he, said, he said, before you got to the end of the story, I knew what the ending was. Hmm? The poor are hooked on entertainment. Something in this culture has told them they're hooked on entertainment. Employed people are afraid of losing their job. They want us on the hook for our mortgages, our kids' welfare. Where do we go? What do we eat? Yahshua says not to worry about that stuff, but the employed are afraid of losing their jobs. If something's amiss on the job, do you have the courage to speak up? Then we have our own human tendency to protect people, places, and things we like. Oh, yeah. We'll defend our kids if they're wrong. Our favorite entertainers, anything, we'll defend them. The human tendency to make excuses for ourselves, that was in the previous slide. I'm good, I deserve more mercy, I deserve a break. Then there's addictions, wall-to-wall addictions. There are people that want you addicted. They have scientifically found ways to get you addicted. They want you on the hook. And then there's the human tendency to offload the cost of our problems on others. Can I get someone else to pay for this? Why would I cover such a downbeat list? Because it, it dramatizes the distance between where we are as a people, as a culture, and where we have to be for the tribulation. Let's go back to that list. I'm good. I'm a victim of injustice. Judgment doesn't apply to me. The rules don't apply in my case. I deserve a break today. I deserve more mercy. I deserve more money. I deserve a lot of things. And of course, they're telling you this through the media. The truth is, all have sinned. Every one of us deserves death. Okay, we're going to do a case study. I want my pension fat. Case study. There's a financial analyst I talk about sometimes with my friend. She's named Catherine Austin Fitz. I'll tell you a little bit about her. She was the assistant director of, pardon, assistant secretary of HUD in, under the George Bush number one administration. When she saw the corruption and the problems, she tried to fight back. She threw her hands up and walked away. She's dedicated her life now to financial strategies that will renew communities, how to invest in good things. Well, she gave a speech, she gave a presentation on the subject of underground economy to an audience of about 100 people, and she said they were, quote, spiritually committed. I don't know what she meant by that, but I know enough about Catherine Austin Fitz it was probably a, a collection of all kinds of religions and philosophies in there. But in some way, they thought they were elevated. You know, we're, we're above selfishness. We're above evil. She described them as spiritually committed. She explained how a large fraction of the economy is supported by money laundering, fraud, and crime. This is everywhere. No, you're not going to... I talked about denial on a previous slide. 
I'm not making this stuff up. Can we, can we like, get real? A large fraction of our economy is undergirded by money laundering, fraud, and crime. I don't mean a teeny fraction, a large fraction. This is why the scriptures say to Babylon, come out of her, my people. She then asked, how many people would push a red button if they knew that red button would eliminate all that crime? Took a poll. Out of 100 people, only one person said they would push the button. One out of 100. So I'll push that button. So she said, why? I thought you all were spiritually committed. They said because they wanted their pensions preserved. They said, they reasoned like the following. They said, you're telling me that a large fraction of the economy is going to go away. That means a fraction of my 401k, my social security. How much of it is, how much of it is evil? How much of that stuff is evil? Would you invest in a company that was going to do human cloning? Well, I know, I don't think anybody here would do that. But suppose your retirement fund was investing in that and you didn't know it. Remember, between now and the end of the talk, I want to stimulate your thought on how the situation is that we're in right now. I want reform, but it better not affect me. I want justice, but it better not impact my retirement fund. Another case study, Hooked on Entertainment. Okay, I talked about the framework for understanding poverty with the poor kids getting a refrigerator. I talked about that one already. Here's another one, live case study. Over 30 years ago, there was a fellow back east. He was, he was in the fellowship. He's long since fallen away. Last I heard, he's in the Dixon Correctional Center in Illinois, and he turned Muslim or Muslim. But let's go way back in time. I remember when I moved to the Frystown Assembly, I said, what is it with this guy here? He's always in, in trouble. And one of the sisters said, oh, yeah, every now and then we've got to blitz some energy as a way to help him out. Well, one Sabbath, he was running around the fellowship hall asking, privately asking individuals to help him with rent. It was my pleasure to help him. About three weeks later, I went to his apartment in Harrisburg, and I discovered a giant electronic keyboard, brand new. Now, he always had a keyboard in which he practiced, but he bought this big, brand new one for himself. I said, hey, where'd that come from? Wow, that looks grand. What is that? He says, oh, I also added, I thought you were behind in your rent. And he said, oh, I caught up with my rent, and... I took some of the extra money and I got this for myself. And then he added, you know, I deserve something of quality in my life. Now, I have to believe the feeling I had at that moment is something you've all experienced. Have you ever had somebody you know say something really dumb and you know that you'll never talk them out of it? You ever have that feeling? Yeah, Brother Lucas is, is giggling back there because he's been on the phone with people so much. It's, I didn't know what to say. I nixed it off, and I thought, I'm going to be more careful with this guy next time. A few more weeks went by, and brethren approached me. They had approached me. And they said, you know, this guy borrowed money from so many people, but one of the families he borrowed from was poor. And everybody knew that family that gave to him. They were having a hard time putting food on the table. 
it would have been more appropriate for this guy, instead of blowing money on a second brand new keyboard, it would have been better for him to return it. He didn't have to return it to me, but he could certainly target that poor family that sacrificed for him. Why is it that the poor now, the Bible says the the poor, uh, Yahweh has made the poor to be rich in faith. That doesn't sound like rich in faith to me. What's happened in this culture, in this society, that the poor are gravitating to entertainment? Then there was that lottery-bound renter of mine. That's entertainment. Have you seen what the lottery tickets look like? They got, they got marquee machines for them now at gasoline stations and airports. And they're very colorful. They're designed to get your attention. Used to be you could go to a convenience store and grab it and go. That was an in-and-out business model. It's been ruined now. I resent standing in line. I just want that cup of coffee. Or I want a receipt for the gas pump out front. But instead, I've got to wait in line as these people are buying lottery tickets. It has been called a tax on the poor. It's also been called a tax on the foolish. Lottery tickets are everywhere. And it's the poor who buy them. What happened that the poor are hooked on entertainment? How about you? Are you hooked on entertainment? Hmm? Let's turn the page and talk about confronting our fears in the context of gritty courage. In Job 3.25, horrible things happen to Job. I'd like you to look at chapter 3, verse 25 with me. There's a jaw-dropping remark there. I just hope I can find it. I hope you never forget this one. Now, Yahshua gives us commands too. And one of those commands is to not fear. Think of all the terrible things that happened to Job. And then you look at verse 25. He says, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come to me. He actually was afraid of these things happening to him. The devil played upon his fears. We're still wondering what Job had to repent of there. He said he repented. He always said he was righteous. But uh, I guess there's no more reason to fear it if it already happened to you, huh? We have to confront our fears and overcome them. If we're going to be ready for the tribulation, we have to confront our fears. Is there something right now that you're supposed to do but you're afraid to do? Come on. All of you, I bet every one of us here has something. We know Yahweh wants us to get cracking on this, but we're afraid to do it. Maybe a part of us will die. Maybe we'll fail the first couple of times around. What are you afraid of? There's that revelation warning in Revelation 21.8. I read it before. The fearful are first in the list amongst whoremongers and sorcerers and murderers. The fearful are first in the list. Yahweh wants a strong people. He wants a brave people. So I've just, in the prior slides, I've talked with you about all these cushy things that are fattening us up for the kill. All these, I mean, this society of ours is as soft as a bag of dead mice. That's, that's how bad it is. And how are those people, in those kind of bondages, how are they going to be ready to develop the kind of courage called for by Yah's word? Let's talk about that parable of the talents. 
the master gives all these talents out to people to have them buy and trade and, and cultivate um, prosperity. And one of them says, I was fearful, and I hid it in a napkin, and I buried it. And he's called a wicked and lazy servant. He said, at least you could have gotten me some interest on it. But he was fearful. Well, the, the verse I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 31.8 is repeated many times in many ways. I'm just, for the, for the record, because there is an audio outreach, I'm reading one of these verses that says the same thing as so many others. Deuteronomy 31.8. Oh, fiddles, I got the wrong verse. Okay, um, it's been said so many times. I'm sorry, I got Deuteronomy 31.8, and somehow I wound up with the wrong verse. So I'm going to tell you what it says. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not afraid. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. He says words of that tenor all throughout the Bible. Fear thou not. Don't be afraid. How about confronting our own sins? How about our own sins? I would rather confront my sins in the privacy of my home, but sometimes my friends have to approach me. Mm-hmm. Did you know it's even harder? It's hard to confront my sins in the privacy of my home. It's harder when my friends approach me. But you know what's harder than that is when I have to approach my friends. That's why sometimes people go run into others. You know what he did to me? Rather than go direct. If you're a student of human nature, you might find... Uh, Amusing, entertaining, a remark once made by President Trump. Because he does say a lot of funny things. He says, I don't like to, I don't like to do bad things to people because then I have to apologize. <laughs> and he doesn't like apologizing. And I heard him say that. I said, yeah, I can relate to that. I'd rather behave myself than have to always apologize. Let's talk about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, we all know the story. First, a priest went by and distanced himself. He didn't want to be unclean. You know, my concern is people hiding behind religion as though to hide from reality. To wrap yourself up in scriptures and religious talk and you're not confronting reality. That Good Samaritan is an ugly story. Look at the details. He was beaten, stripped of his clothes and, le- stripped of his clothes and left half dead. The second guy that passed him by was a Levite. He had no excuse. The Levite, in fact, the Levites were supposed to be the teachers. He should have known what was required of him. But the good Samaritan overcame his fears. So many have said this, it's worth repeating. Everybody before him said, hmm, if I help this guy, what's going to happen to me? But the good Samaritan said, hmm, if I don't help him, what's going to happen to him? In terms of confronting our fears or situations we're going to have to face that are ugly, require a lot of love and mercy and courage to take them on. And once you get in the midst of it, you find out there was nothing to fear. It's so funny. There was nothing to fear. And then there's hardening of the heart, a special kind of fear. You say, no, you're always asking me to no. Yahweh doesn't ask anything. Yahweh's commanding me to do something that's going to be kind of painful if I take action. I'm going to harden my heart 
and hope this works out later. In Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19, it says, Lest there should be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from Yahweh our Elohim to go and serve the Elohim of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace. Though I walk in the imagination of my heart to add drunkenness to thirst. I'm going to underscore two parts of this. One is, he blessed himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart. Don't think that um, just because the tribulation is, is a distance in the future, that you can just roller coaster right into that. We have the warning of the ten virgins. Some of us are going to turn to the rest of us and say, you're not ready. You can't face this with us. You can't go with us. That last thing there, it took me a long time to find out what that meant, to add drunkenness to thirst. You know, wine is not a thirst quencher. It's actually a diuretic. It actually dehydrates you. But there are people who are thirsty will drink wine. They get drunk before they get the thirst quenched. You're always saying that's what happens. When you, you soothe yourself with these words, you bless yourself in your heart and say, I'll have peace. I'll be okay. We'll take the plunge now. Look for grace later. Others found mercy. I can too. We'll work something out later. We'll, we'll work it out later. In my experience, observation and research, painful experience, I found that when I don't nip things in the bud, they get way worse. So much harder to handle. It's better for us to develop gritty courage now than to wait to the end. Let's talk about lessons we learn from politicians. They all make the same mistake. They all make the same mistake. They make it look easy. Vote for me and all these evils are going to go away. All you got to do is go down to the voting center, pull the lever for me, and all your problems go away. I've never heard a politician get up there and say, it's rough, it's going to be bad, it's going to take a lot of sacrifice to straighten this mess out. Never heard that. The closest I've heard is um, two cases. John Kennedy, in his inauguration, said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then Jim Edgar in Illinois, he said um, once, uh, if you make me governor, I'm raising your taxes. There's no way we can get around it. But that's just a taste of what it takes to reform this nation. These guys remind me like the beggars at the exit ramps. In Chicago, if you come off the highway, the exit ramp, they got the car, the beggars got their car stalled off to the side, and they say, sir, I'm not making this up, Jose and Javon, anybody else from Chicago, they'll verify this. They go, sir, my car ran out of gas. My uncle is dying on the other side of town. I've got to get there. If you just give me a dollar for gas, I can get there. So what they do is typically they they manufacture this three-dimensional story deep and complex, and all this goes away if you just give me one dollar. And of course, by the time your mind is pulled into this story, you think, here's a dollar, friend. I'm glad to help you. You're glad to get them out of your face. But the way I handle it is I say, oh, there's a gas station over there. I got a gas can in the back. I'll meet you over there. They never come to the gas station. They never come to the gas station. But they make it sound easy. Just give me a dollar, and all this evil goes away. That's how the politicians are. 
They tell you about all the evil they're going to fix if you just vote for me. They make it seem easy. Yahshua, in contrast, makes it look hard. Yahshua made it look hard following him. He made it look hard because it would be hard. Now let's get on the record as something. The realities of the challenges we have in this walk, they're real. But the vast majority of it comes from either inside, our own stubbornness, or because outsiders make it hard. We really want to do good things, right things. One thing I like about this, this movement I'm in is that we don't have any charismatic leaders to pamper and powder. In fact, if somebody gets a little too popular, we get scared of them. We don't want to deal with that. The call is for you to engage your creator, to be informed by your savior, and to follow him. But he says you've got to forsake all for him. That speaks to some of those lists I gave you earlier. He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You know, he lost a lot there. He lost, a, he lost most of his followers there. Now, a little while later, those who stuck around heard him say, those things I'm telling you are spirit. They're, they're symbolic. But the people who left him never stuck around for that. This is just one snapshot of many. One of the apostles was on traveling work, and it says he was confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of Elohim. Let's quote Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. When you contrast the few with the many, it's obvious he's talking about a minority versus a majority. Friends, we are stuck in a culture where everything is too easy and sin is convenient, and we are part of this world. Yahshua and the apostles paint a picture of sacrifice and courage. Is there some intermediate step to get there, to get us from where we're at today to where we got to be for the end time? I'm going to take an example from the scriptures. I'm going to take a biblical framework and show you where we're at now so you have something you can work on, something you can sink your teeth in. Because right now, at this very moment, it looks bleak. The, gap, the gulf between us and where we have to be is so large. It's so large. As we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the background is status quo religion. Now think about it. You leave the book of Malachi, you're coming into the book of Malachi, uh, Matthew, and what you have is status quo religion. You have, at that time, was Judaism. Today, our status quo religion is mainstream Christianity. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's the backdrop. Then you jump to the time of Yahshua and the apostles, and we have extraordinary cases of courage, intensity, dedication, and religious fervor. How do we jump from one to the other? I'm repeating the chart I gave you earlier. So many of us are entwined in the system. It's become a virtual dependence. Some are worried about how to fudge a mortgage application. Or pretending they're poor, they apply for financial aid. And some of us have tricked ourselves into thinking we're that poor. The poor themselves are hooked on entertainment. The employed are afraid of losing their job. We have the human tendency to protect people, places, and things we like. The human tendency to make excuses for ourselves. Addictions everywhere. 
Friends, it's worse than you realize. And the human tendency to offload the cost of our problems on other people. How do we jump from this this zone where everybody's all softened up like a baby's cheek? How do you get from that to the gritty courage you need to face the tribulation? Because when a time comes, they will hunt us like animals. They've done it before and they'll do it again. So I've, I've listed here these two zones in time. When you transition from Old Testament to New Testament, you have status quo religion. And then when Yahshua and the apostles are on the scene, it's exciting. Religious fervor and extraordinary courage. They didn't care if they were killed. In fact, if they were getting killed, they thought, hey, I'm just that much closer to the kingdom. So what was in between there? It was the ministry of John the Baptist. And I'd like you to look at that that era as kind of a snapshot of where we're at now. I'm not saying we're going to be the John the Baptist ministry. I'm just using it as a type to look at what he taught and what was part of his ministry as a sort of a preparation for what was to come. We're going to read here Luke chapter 3, verse 10 to 14. By the way, there's only 13 slides left, and they go pretty fast, I promise. The people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that has food, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans, tax collectors, to be baptized. And said unto him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. What I'd like you to think about is what he didn't tell them. Here's this guy dressed in camel hair and eating honey and locusts. A real rough lifestyle. A real simple lifestyle. He never said, be like me. Didn't say that. He was all practical stuff. Down to earth stuff. We're going to take a closer look in a minute. Now when Yahshua comes, he says, be like me. He has the authority to do that. But John the Baptist, with all of his strictness and severity, he's giving people practical advice. To the people, he, meant, he emphasized charity and kindness. Got two coats? Share with one. You have extra food? Share. What do they tell you today? Hoard. Accumulate. Acquire. Grow. And then when you're old, you got a ton of junk in the garage, in the, in the cellar, in the attic. Your kids got to clean it up. Hmm? Would you like to come to my house and help me clean out the garage? Did you know a significant amount of the stuff I have is not mine? Those of you who know me well know what, how that happens. Had people stay with me and then leave. I've had people, uh, a two cases, my parents' stuff. I have uh, one brother in the faith passed away, and the family asked me to take his things. I'm not finished going through it. Um, other cases. But as I go through this stuff and I help people move, I ask myself, do they need all this? I'm trying to trim down. John the Baptist is saying, share. Get rid of it. Pass it around. Today they tell you to hoard. That new shiny thing. To the tax collectors, now the publicans, they worked on commission. The more they charged you, the more they got. John is indicting abuse of authority and graft, corruption. 
He says, exact no more than what is appointed to you. Question, are you making demands on the government that are going to increase my taxes? Hmm? Are you into that? To the soldiers, they had abuse of authority. He says, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely. What's amazing is that if you step back and think about it, regardless of your political persuasion, we have evidence of abuse of authority from law enforcement. We have evidence of abuse of authority at the local level and at the highest levels of government. It's amazing how timely John's remarks are. Be content with your wages. In 1 Timothy 6, 8, it says, With food and clothing, let us be there with content. Are you content with food and clothing? You will never, ever ever be ready for the big time, the end time, if you are not content with food and clothing. Can you get yourself to a place where you're content with food and clothing? By the way, brother, uh, one of the beloved brothers uh, sent me a text message the other day. He says, I've decided to take one day off from social media. Hmm. That sounds like a good idea. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do more than one day. <laughs> are you content with food and clothing? Everything we have now could be taken away from us in a flash. Well, let's look a little closer at John the Baptist's ministry. Yahshua says that he's the Eliah to come. Let's look at Malachi 4, chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. And I'm going to pause with comments. Starting with verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. When John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of Elohim is at hand... He's talking about repenting of breaking these laws. To restore righteousness, the days of Eliah, just like that song we sing. Behold, I will send you, Eliah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. That's restoration-style ministries. I'm not using that word restoration to pander to the name of the organization we're members of. I'm talking about restoring righteousness. And they have other ways of describing it in other parts of the the network. Some people use Hebrew roots. Some people talk about revival. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to children and the heart of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's right, rebuilding families. And notice it's not just the heart of the fathers to the children. Because some fathers have fallen short, right? But restoring the heart of the children to their fathers. Children should celebrate what their dads are doing and what they're into and be supportive of their fathers. To get to the place of gritty courage, we'll have to first get good at that which is laid before us. As you'll find, I have failed today. I have failed. This is my message today. I have failed. Because I don't know how to get to the place of that gritty courage the saints of old had. I, I, I really don't know how to get there, but I can work on the things that are laid before me now. But I mean to get really good at them, to learn enforcement of Yah's standards in my personal life and anything over which I have authority. To learn the mind of the Messiah. How did he look at things? You notice how he de-emphasized materialism? He emphasized relationship with the Father. What other things is he into? There's a lot of things he imparted to us that are not common. They're not normal to the average mind. To learn to say no to sin. 
Yeah, I've got to get really good at that. We've got to come clean in areas in which we are supporting and or wrongfully benefiting from a corrupt system. I've rolled all my retirement funds into retirement plans where I can say where the money goes. I'm afraid to leave it with someone who's going to invest it in a company that's into cloning human beings or some other evil. In what ways are we wrongfully benefiting from a corrupt system? And we've got to get good, I mean really good, at watching and waiting for Yah's timely guidance. No, we've got to get good at that. I mean get really good. Develop the courage to practice righteousness in hard places. I just realized not too long ago I actually did something unethical. I took a piece of furniture from my home. It was a business desk. I busted it up and I threw it in the dumpster at my office. I thought, wait a minute, I should should be paying for that. And I'll, I'll contact the city hall later, but that was wrong for me to throw something from my home in the dumpster at work. Righteousness in hard places, I guess I should include little places. Because he who's faithful in a little thing will be faithful in a big thing. And then to develop the courage to face ugly things now. We have some sacred duties before us, and some of it's kind of ugly. And we wait and watch for his timely guidance. I told you two slides were the the primary ones. This This is one of them. To get really good at developing courage, to face ugly things, to face our own sins. And let me uh, close with an apology. Uh, today's message has fallen short. Right now, I don't know how to do that gritty courage, but I know that's the direction I'm headed in. No, well, that's the direction you should be too. And yes, I firmly believe in game night. The the feast this last fall was a snapshot of the kingdom. We played strong, we worked strong, and we worshiped strong. Let's remember that Satan cannot kill us, so he will instead work at discouraging us and wearing us out. You really should put that on your refrigerator. Don't fall for it. He can't kill you, but he'll try to discourage you. He'll scare you. Why, if you do that righteous thing, look at this bad thing that's going to happen. I'm going to close with uh, Isaiah 58, 6 to 14. Now, when I conclude, thank you for your attention, of course. When I conclude with this, I'll surrender the, the microphone to Brother Javon. Is not this the fast I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free? And that you break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health spring forth speedily. And thy righteousness shall go before thee. The honor of Yahweh shall be thy rear guard. Thou shalt call, and Yahweh shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou wilt take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. If I will draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as noonday. And Yahweh shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones and you shall be like a watered garden. 
and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build up the old way places, excuse me, the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundation of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If they turn thy foot away from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of Yahweh, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in Yahweh, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Brothers and sisters, let's work on these things that are laid before us now and figure out how to get that gritty courage we need for the end times ahead.